If you were here yesterday, you'll understand that I'm preaching on two different themes, or, or two different aspects of the same theme. Yesterday I talked about how pilgrimage is the uh, analog, the analogy, the allegory for uh, living the Christian life. And today I'm going to actually focus on pilgrimage, going on physical pilgrimage. I'll, I'll hopefully uh, make a connection for you that will make sense and hopefully prove useful uh, as I present this idea of, a, of another means of grace that we can, uh, we can consider using. Uh, maybe not necessarily, but maybe. Might prove useful for you. Um, if you are uh, following the, the, uh, the topic from yesterday, I also want to say that my understanding of preaching, and, and this isn't the only way to categorize uh, you know, presenting from a pulpit, but I think of three basic styles. Exegetical styles, topical styles, and exhortation style. Yesterday I exhorted. Today I'm going to focus on a, a, use a topical approach. If you want to think about that, think about a concordance and look at the heading of a concordance and think about the verses that are underneath it. That's more or less the approach that will be used because I had a theme this particular time. Uh, a theme of pilgrimage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found acceptable before you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, I, I almost hesitate to say this, given that there are all these visitors. None of you are bishops, right? Nobody here is a bishop in the United Methodist Church, are you? Good, good. All right. Uh, because, uh, let me be blunt, it is no secret that my denomination, the United Methodist Church, is now and has been for 40 years, every single annual conference I have ever attended, 40 years. My denomination's in conflict. And I gotta admit, I'm getting real tired of it. I, maybe I'm just getting old. That's a possibility, and I accept that as reality. Um, but I think it's also simply this accrual of dysfunction that at a certain point, you just get tired of bad doctrine, of bad morality. Most of all, tired of the energy that gets lost that could have been directed somewhere else. If you were an economics major in college or you're a business person, you'll know what this is called an opportunity cost. We spend so much time on this fight that we don't do things we ought to be doing. So, I'm going to confess. See, I wanted to hold off and do this on Thursday because I knew there'd be fewer people. You know, it's going to, you know, I, I'm going to open myself. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be vulnerable. All right. Um, I have to admit, sometimes my mind has wandered, and I hereby publicly acknowledge that I have, on occasion, only occasion, daydreamed about leaving the UMC and aligning myself with another religious community. I've thought about it. Uh, but then I face another problem. And that is, where would I go? Because I honestly don't know. Maybe it's that dilemma that's kept me from acting for the last 40 years and just going ahead and withdrawing. Maybe I'm just lazy. Maybe there's some kind of emotional inertia. But I think the main problem is, really, I don't know where to go because I don't know who is successfully holding together the two things I want to have held together. On the one hand, I am very low church. For those of you who don't know, I pastor a country church out here across the river, 
And if you ever go to the church, you don't have to come on Sunday morning. As I said yesterday, we're not sheep stealers. On the other hand, if you're not affiliated and you're looking for a congregation, <laughs> new students, uh, no. Uh, um, uh, if you ever go into that building, you will see it is about as plain a building as you can get. There is no carpeting, or very little, there's down the middle. Uh, the pews are still unpadded. The walls are hard plaster. The ceiling's never been lowered. There is not indoor plumbing. I am, by definition, low church. I simply do not believe that we should do things that are highly liturgical. I'm not opposed to it. You like it, that's fine. I have had conversations with Jessica, poor, gone astray Jessica, who, uh, <laughs> who, who made quite clear to me, in an incredibly nice way, I would point out, uh, that we were going to stand for the gospel reading, and we were going to add a liturgical statement thereafter. You know, I, I'm not big on liturgical clothing. I don't particularly like, particularly like the idea of clerical collars. And as somebody who identifies extremely strongly with the holiness tradition, I do think that worship should center on proclamation, scripture and proclamation. I really do. So, given that that's the case, I have thought about, if I ever left the UMC, I've thought very seriously about, about becoming either Mennonite or one of the Brethren churches, just moving that way. I was raised near those communities up in Ohio. Uh, I actually still occasionally practice foot washing. I'd fit in. That'd be a nice place to go. I'd only sort of fit in, though. Because the other thing that I want merged together, and I'm convinced of this, is that some ritual behaviors are genuine means of grace. They're genuine ways in which God acts upon us, that his Holy Spirit comes through to us, that God regularly does this in the lives of his people. At our little country church, for instance, every week we practice communion because we believe it to be efficacious. Now, we don't have a high church theology of communion, but we practice it because it is a means of grace. It's the way the Holy Spirit acts. I sometimes do ponder whether adult baptism might be preferable, but I do believe infant baptism is a means of grace. I baptize my children, in fact, with water from the River Jordan. Amen, brother. Um, and, uh, and I baptized my grandchildren as infants, not because I thought it was magic, but because I thought it was spiritually efficacious, because I thought they were being brought into a community that was going to hold them accountable and that they would be raised in the care of this community to practice the faith into which they were being brought. So, I even have to admit that on a rare occasion, I have said prayers that have been repeated over the centuries. Hopefully, they're not empty words, but I admit I have read prayers as prayers. That's, that's a hard thing for a low church person to say. Take my word for it. So, given that that's the case, the other denomination I've considered joining is the Anglicans, all right? So I'm going to be the first Mennonite Anglican. That's, that's it, right there. <laughs> thus, thus, I, at this point, feel, oh, such a difficult word to use, I feel compelled to stay in the UMC, at least, at least for a while. Or if I do eventually move, and, and I want to note that sadly, because it is a possibility. 
I want to move somewhere where there's a purity of plain-spoken, laity-empowering, simple evangelical Protestantism that prioritizes the Scripture and requires believers to live a, live a life of purity in terms of possession, sexuality, and satisfaction of human appetites and people who serve the poor. And somehow that gets united with the best aspects of the ancient traditions of the church. Especially those traditions and I think this explains part of the interest recently in Anglicanism and in Orthodoxy Big O, especially those traditions of the church that unite all the senses in spiritual practice. One should hear, smell, see, touch, and even taste, at least on some occasions, the entry of the divine into the world. There really is something to be said for feeling and tasting the sacramental bread when it's dipped in wine and it touches one's tongue. There's something to be said at least occasionally, for praying by yourself, not some big public display like the Pharisees who wanted to be seen on the street corners, but praying in private, on your knees, or even laying down on your face. There's something to be said about using the whole body in worship and in spiritual formation. There's even something to be said about gazing at a beautiful piece of art that is designed specifically not to entice human lusts, but to elevate one's one toward the divine. So, I guess what I'm hoping is that this moment of disarray in American Christianity, and believe it or not, the United Methodist Church is not the denomination that's in the worst condition. That's no compliment, by the way. But, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, we are in this moment of disarray. It's what Robert Wuthnow, a very, very famous sociologist, has called restructuring of Protestantism. And I am going to hope that we are going to take it as an opportunity not to simply splinter into smaller and smaller communities, but to properly reorder the church by preserving the things that are pure and good and by being innovative and contextual. In other words, I think we should do what Jesus commended in Matthew chapter 13. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things that are new and things that are old. For me, one practice, and it's only one, there are many others, but it's one that's extremely important for me, a practice that has been uh, significant in uniting plain faith with the traditions of the past, with the saints on earth and the saints above, has been pilgrimage. And so allow me, if I may, to argue that we should reclaim this ancient practice that was certainly of great use when it wasn't corrupted, and it sometimes was, because it can be a means of contemplating the Christian life. It can serve as a very effective allegory, a way of teaching us spiritually how to live as pilgrims sojourning through this world. I will even go so far as to say, with delicacy, with caution, with caveat, but I will say there is spiritual value in standing someplace where something wondrous occurred. There is spiritual value in seeing something that was present when the miraculous happened. There's spiritual value in holding something that belonged to someone who lived the Christian life in a pure and deep sense. For me to do these things is both respectful and honoring. It's honoring because I don't think these people have ceased to be. I very much believe there's a cloud of witnesses. They're encouraging me. I honor their honoring of me 
as they're encouraging me in this great pilgrimage toward God. And I think it's respectful because I recognize that someone once did something to glorify God, and I realize that even if I can't do something as wonderful as they have, I can do more than I do now. I can move in that direction. Also, I think proper pilgrimage is honoring and respectful of Christ. After all, Jesus participated in pilgrimage. He honestly did. He went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to participate in the great festivals. The same Lord who declared in John 4 to the Syrophoenician woman that soon God would be worshipped not on the mountain, not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth, is the Jesus who went up for the Passover feast and the Jesus who went to the Jordan to be baptized. Beyond that, the scripture does imply there's some legitimacy, and again, I say this with great caution, to the idea of relics, at least a little bit, not as something magical, but as something that serves as a reminder. The woman cured by the hemorrhage, of the hemorrhage, excuse me, touched just the hem of Jesus' garment. Okay, Jesus was wearing it. Maybe that wasn't a relic. Or in Acts 19, Luke says, God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick. Diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. In the early church, the anti-Nicene church, the church before the uh, rise of Constantine, after Polycarp, the extraordinary martyr, was burned in, uh, in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, chapter 18 on, of Polycarp. It says this, We took up his bones, which are more valuable. This was in 156. We took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold, and laid them in a suitable place, for the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves together as we are able in gladness and joy to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. Understand, they're not worshiping the bones. The bones are a reminder of what Polycarp did and the example he set. In the fourth century, Jerome said this, uh, addressing that specific concern. We do not worship, we do not adore, for fear that we should bow down to the creature rather than the creator, but we venerate the relics of the martyrs in order to better adore him whose martyrs they are. Now that said, I, I really do want to emphasize this. Because don't forget, I got that low church voice pulling me back, you know, constantly. Uh, I, I want to be clear here. If one is going to practice pilgrimages, if one's going to participate in that behavior, it needs to be done with caution. There really are dangers. Pilgrimages had appropriately fallen into disrepute by the onset of the Reformation. The Reformation may have ended them, but they were already becoming less significant. And that was for four reasons. First of all, pilgrimages had been used to garner political power. They, they weren't just religious Christian activities. They were often political activities. The most famous is one that I've walked twice. It's the Camino de Santiago. It's across northern Spain. And um, along that route, you'll see representations of uh, Santiago Peregrino, which means uh, St. James the Pilgrim. He's wearing a floppy hat, and he's got a, a scallop seashell on his head, and he's carrying a gourd and a staff, and he's just kind of walking along as a pilgrim. You will also see, however, Santiago Matamoros, which means St. James, the slayer of the Moors, because that pilgrimage was also used in the fight for the so-called reconquest for political reasons to inspire uh, the Christians to fight against the Islamics who controlled Spain for centuries and in a process that they thought 
was liberation. And of course, there were plenty of petty, mo of petty nobles and worldly clerics who used pilgrimages in their own small states to garner power to themselves. A second reason why you've got to be careful with pilgrimage is the provenance of relics. There are a lot of relics, and there are a lot of relics that probably aren't relics. And, and you need to understand that if you're going on a pilgrimage. I don't know if it's fair, but John Calvin summed up the argument this way in, a, uh, in an article appropriately enough called A Treatise on Relics in 1543. Let us consider how many relics of the true cross there are across the world. An account of those merely with which I am acquainted would fill a whole volume. For there is not a church from a cathedral to a miserable little abbey or a small parish congregation that does not contain a piece of it. Large splinters of it are preserved in various places, as, for instance, in the Holy Chapel at Paris. Whilst in Rome, they show a crucifix of considerable size made entirely, they say, from the wood. In short, if we were to collect all these pieces of the true cross exhibited in various parts, they would form a whole ship's cargo. Gospel testifies that the cross could be borne by one single individual. I agree. It doesn't mean that it's not significant, though, to still go to the sites. And it doesn't mean that there may not be parts of the true cross. But we do need to understand it's been abused. Third, caution. Practices on pilgrimage routes are often vulgar. Um, I've walked a lot of them now. And I will tell you, there are a lot of people who act in morally inappropriate ways. They're away from their hometown. They can't be seen. This is nothing new. Go back and read the pre-Protestant book called the poem called Piers Plowman, or open up Canterbury Tales. You must have a copy of it. You know, it's the book that you only read one chapter of, you remember, in high school, that book. Open it up, break the binding a little, read it. You will see that vulgarity along pilgrimage routes is nothing new. People tried to get away with things because they were anonymous. A Christian along that route has to be cautious. I, I will add this, just as a little side note. On the Camino de Santiago, the first time I walked with a, a man who's been my prayer partner, accountability partner for decades. Second time, I walked with my wife, different routes. On both occasions, simply by living a quiet, calm, Christian life without participating in debauchery, made you a person that others sought out because there are a lot of seekers on these pilgrimage routes. And they come to you and they want to hear the gospel. I have done more day in, day out, testifying about Christ on those routes than I do in my normal existence. Because people are looking. There's a fourth thing about which we do have to take warning though, and that's it. Pilgrimages did back then, and sometimes even now, less often, they did produce bad theology. The act of walking or touching a relic got turned into magic. Oh, follow this road. Wave your hands in this way. Touch that object and all will be well. There was an assumption of cause and effect rather than a trusting in Jesus Christ. We discussed this yesterday. Faith for a Christian is not faith about Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus means sometimes you're not going to be cured. Faith in Jesus means sometimes your problems aren't going to go away. Faith in Jesus sometimes means you're going to die before you thought you were going to. Faith in Jesus means sometimes you're not going to live out what you thought was your calling. But faith in Jesus always results 
in a true peace, in a true joy at the end of that pilgrimage. If that's not understood, if that's not maintained, then too quickly touching these things, focusing on the saints, focusing on the relic rather than on the Christ they serve, too often or too easily, too readily, it can become idolatry. Now, as a matter of history, the minor pilgrimages began to disappear before the Reformation. And the major pilgrimages started to dwindle. The four major pilgrimages were the pilgrimage to Rome, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That obviously dwindled because after the First Crusade, the Holy Land was taken back, so you couldn't go there. So Rome, Jerusalem, Santiago in northern Spain, and the fourth one was Canterbury in England. Those were the four major pilgrimage routes. Well, the, the final blow to pilgrimages, at least until really the middle of the 20th century, uh, the final significant blow to pilgrimages was the dissolution of the monasteries and the rise of Protestantism. So if you go to England, many of the sites that were once pilgrimage sites are now simply ruins. Yet, the idea, the need, um, the human longing to touch, taste, see, hear, smell as part of spirituality could not be completely repressed. It can't be. It's part of who we are. We are not physical beings and spiritual beings. We're physio-spiritual beings. We're one thing. It cannot be repressed for that very reason. Many is the Methodist minister. Now, they might not have called it a pilgrimage, but it was, who has traveled to England to see Wesley's chapel, even though, this is the low church coming out in me, even though it has now been bombastically covered up with Victorian claptrap and hid in the, the simplicity of Wesley's original intention is now gone. Nonetheless, you go there. It's a pilgrimage. Many is the Protestant who stands before the grave of some significant figure or stands in a pulpit where someone great preached and bows his or her head. Many is the Protestant church that has a memorial room that includes various relics of the church history, even museum-quality stones or bricks or whatever that were parts of prior buildings. I have to admit, when they took all the slate off of the roof of this building, there was a piece out there, I picked it up. I took it home. Now, I'm not saying it is infused with magical power. I'm saying it's a relic of a truly great spiritual place this building on this campus. Uh, consider right down here in this lobby. If you're visiting, you should see it. There's a clock hanging on the wall. Now, that clock's not hanging on the wall because it's a masterpiece of, of Dutch clockwork from the late 19th century. It's hanging on the wall because it belonged to the Corey Ten Boom family and because that was the clock they were looking at when the Nazis were knocking down their door. It has a spiritual significance because it connects us with the cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses keep pointing to God, and that becomes a vehicle for us to keep seeing our Lord, keep seeing our Lord. Oh, that's how you saw him? Boy, that helps me understand better. Oh, that's how so-and-so how -so witnessed to Christ through life and death? Now I can better walk toward Jesus Christ. And indeed, the best example of Protestants participating in pilgrimage is uh, whatever it's called, educational opportunities, and it's numerous trips to the Holy Land. Where do people want to go? Oh, I really want to put my foot in the Jordan River. You know? I, I, I really want to go to the Holy Sepulcher. Can we, can we, can we stand in, in the Garden of Gethsemane 
where Jesus Christ prayed, and I want to pray there. Because something significant happened. All right, I've walked, as I said, a, a lot of pilgrimages, a good number of them. Here's a pretty full list. Walked the Camino de Santiago twice by different routes, once about 525 kilometers on the French way, and once, uh, that's a lot of semi-arid arid track, by the way, one about 325 kilometers on the Camino Primitivo, the original way. That's like hiking East Kentucky. I mentioned this yesterday. My, my wife was... Uh, I won't say irritated with me, because my wife is never irritated with me. Um, uh, uncertain of my decision-making capacity. Let me leave it that way. When she saw the snow caps as we're going, oh, look, yeah, there's snow caps in those mountains. No, we'll be fine, you know? And then all of a sudden, we're in mountains for two weeks, hiking up and down. Uh, I've walked to Canterbury from Rochester Cathedral uh, through St. Dunstan's. So I've been to the place where, Saint, where uh, Thomas More's head is buried. And very significant for me was standing on the place, the very ground, where Thomas Beckett was murdered for insisting that the church stood above the state. That was a very moving thing for me. That walk was about 80 kilometers. Walked from Melrose in Scotland to Lindisfarne, the Holy Island, which is in northernmost England. Um, it's the place from which Irish Christianity was reintroduced, or Christianity was reintroduced into northern England. And uh, the way you get to it is you walk, and then you come to the shore, and you wait until the tide goes down. And then you walk about one and a half kilometers across a tidal pool. Uh, and, you, and you really need to not dilly-dally, because it rises 10 yards, 10 meters up, excuse me. So you, you don't want to be out there when the tide starts coming in. Uh, went all of 10 meters, this was a pretty short pilgrimage, to the burial crypt of Edward the Confessor behind the high altar in Westminster Abbey. Only opened once a year. You know, but it's a significant pilgrimage site in the history of Christianity. Went to Holywell, uh, which is in Wales. Even brought back a bottle of water from Holywell. Looks a lot like a bottle of baby shampoo. But it says, but it says St. Winifred's Well, and it does say holy water. Uh, it was one of the very, very few sites, actually, that was not destroyed uh, in the dissolution of the monasteries. Been to the seven churches of the Revelation. One that was extremely moving to me, and I picked up a little pebble from it, was uh, the Basilica of St. John in Ephesus in Turkey. Right, this is outside. Didn't touch the historic site. It was from outside, but picked up a little pebble from there. Um, was able to stand in Izmir at the church site where Polycarp, where Polycarp, was, the, Polycarp was the martyr. Uh, stood at the red, so-called Red Basilica, which had been a temple of Isis, where the first Christian martyr in that area was murdered. It's described in the Revelation, Antipas. And um, also, just more recently, and this one may not be as interesting to Protestants, but it's quite interesting to me, um, I walked about, uh, this was about uh, 12, 14 kilometers, it was just a, a morning walk, uh, to a place called Chimayo, because there's a tradition of holy dirt instead of holy water. It's in New Mexico. They don't have enough water to have holy water. They have holy dirt. Right? But it's an extraordinary thing to kneel where somebody has knelt for a thousand years. It's an extraordinary thing to be someplace, not where the high festivals occurred, but where believers who were poor, marginal, broken came to Christ. 
It's an amazing thing to do that and to understand they were pilgrims through life, I'm a pilgrim through life, and we can make a true connection through this cloud of witnesses. Well, over the years, four things specifically stand out for me. Uh, interestingly enough, by the way, these come up in that most Protestant of books, A Pilgrim's Progress, I would also note. Four things, though. I'll, I'll run through them quickly, but I do think they're worth hearing. Uh, I base this in part on that Hebrews 12 passage that was read yesterday. Uh, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. First thing you need to do if you're going to go on a pilgrimage, and I would argue, allegorically, not just physically, but in your life, is you've got to get rid of some stuff. You've got to get rid of not just the bad things, but you've got to get rid of some of the glories that you still hold on to, like Paul talked about in Philippians. I leave behind. I leave behind some of those things that I did. Yeah, yeah, okay, you know, I'll leave the certificate on my wall, but that isn't my focus anymore. I'm going to press on. Uh, if you ever walk the Camino de Santiago on the, what's called the French Way, You'll come to this place called the, the Cruz de Ferro, the Iron Cross. It's about three-quarters of the way. And you're supposed to bring a stone from home. I brought a little rock. This is a little teeny stone from the farm upon which we live. And uh, you leave that stone there as a symbol that you're going to finish the pilgrimage having cast off everything, and you're going to press ahead. I truly mean this seriously. This is not meant as a joke. We need to very seriously consider on our pilgrimage, whether you're literally walking one or just the pilgrimage of life, disconnecting from phones and Facebook and constant use of the computer every once in a while. It is dragging us down. It is slowing you down on your pilgrim walk. That's an important pilgrim lesson. Second thing I've, I've learned along the way is to recognize the cloud of witnesses. Sorry about the feedback. Don't know what to tell you. Recognize the cloud of witnesses. Um, when you walk, you will find people with whom you're in fellowship. Even if you don't want to, you're walking the same place on the same path. You're just bound to see them every night when you go into these little shelters that cost $5. And you sleep on a bed about this far away from them, and they snore. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to be with those people. And if you find the right ones, find other believers, they're going to give you encouragement. Believers have gone out on these paths, and they've marked them. This is, uh, this is the, it's not one from the, actually from the path, this one I bought. This is the, uh, the path marker for the Camino de Santiago. This is actually a chip, a broken piece from one, which I picked up. And the reason I picked it up is because I just wanted to Always remember the incredible appreciation I had for the cloud of witnesses, not just in heaven, but the ones on earth who were helping me get along. You need people if you're going to walk this pilgrimage. Literal or metaphorically, you need people to help you. You cannot do it alone. I have only one time been truly discouraged on all these pilgrimages, and I will describe it because my sainted wife is present, and she gets the credit. We walked, when we walked from Melrose to Lindisfarne, it rained torrentially every single day. We were the only people on the trail. 
with one exception, somebody was walking their dog one time. Uh, we were two days away from Lindisfarne, and the trail took us, as is typical in England, uh, through somebody's fields. In this particular field, because of the rain, things were starting to get soaked up. We live on a farm. I'm not afraid of farm animals. But I looked at this field and I thought, you've got to be kidding. It was filled with about, I don't know, 30 head of cattle. Now, you don't have to live on a farm to understand this. Cattle deposit stuff. <laughs> and they had deposited a lot in this field. No joke. The water and muck was this thick. It was going over our boots every single step. It was hard, hard walking. And into my boot is flowing cow manure every single step. About halfway across, I turned to her and I say, I'm ready to go home. And she says, you know, the Camino, so stinking perky, you know, <laughs> The Camino de Santiago, when we walked through the mountains, we never had any problems, and that would have been dangerous. This is just inconvenience. So I kept walking. By the way, I didn't collect any cow manure to bring home. I, uh, I did, however, bring, get a little badge when we got to Lindisfarne to remind me of, of what that journey meant. Um, also, as far as being part of the cloud of witnesses, you need to be identifiable. This is a symbol used for the Camino de Santiago. Um, I didn't wear that size of one. I wore a smaller one. Um, you need to be known as a Christian if you're going to go on a pilgrimage. You need to be known as a Christian in your pilgrimage of life. If you're not, you have a spiritual problem. If nobody knows you're a believer, you have a spiritual problem. Not them, you. Well, the third thing about pilgrimages that I have learned over those years is you got to fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, you really do. You just have to fixate on him. And if there are relics, if there are pieces of art, if there are beautiful buildings, make sure they're all pointing to Jesus Christ. Make sure they're pointing to his glory. One way that I've uh, tried to make sure I do this is by keeping a journal. I'm not telling anybody to keep a journal every day. I don't keep a journal every day. But when I go on walks, I do because I want to make sure I'm focusing on Christ. And I write that down, not just the people I know and places I see, I write down the spiritual experience. And the final thing I've learned is I need to press on. You know, like Mars told me while I was standing in cow manure, you gotta press on. You know, that's what the Hebrew passage says, you know, they, they desire a better country. That's a heavenly one, they press on. I have to run with endurance. I wanna show you this just to give you an idea. This is, uh, this is called a pilgrim's passport. And every time, when you're on the Camino de Santiago, you have to have it stamped twice a day to prove you've actually walked. Otherwise, it doesn't count. All right, so that's, that's mine from my first walk. Uh, and, you know, you press it. But when you get to the end, because you're fixing your eyes on the prize, you get this. This is a certificate. Now, in the old days, and still for practicing Roman Catholics who have gone to confession, uh, this, is, uh, this is essentially something like an indulgence. But for me, as a Protestant who's trying to redeem this and hold it together with other aspects of our faith, for me, it's simply a reminder that I followed through, that I did what I said I was going to do, and that I need to do that with my life in Jesus Christ. And that, that takes me to a conclusion. 
I, uh, I honestly don't know what's going to happen with Methodism. I don't have any idea. But I'm at peace. I'm not always happy, but I'm at peace with what's going on because I know I'm on a pilgrimage. And I know that at some point, the cloud of witnesses, the saints above and the saints on earth are going to tell me, stay or go. And I will be obedient when that arises. I'll either stay or I'll go. But no matter what, I'm going to keep pressing on. The high calling of Jesus Christ. If you want to use pilgrimages, fine. You want to use daily scripture reading? Great. You want to kneel and praying? Do that. You want to take communion every day? Wonderful. Any means of grace. Make sure you serve the poor, the marginalized, people in prison. Those are means of grace too. Do something, but don't stop. You're on a pilgrimage. You're trying to get to the heavenly city. You can't give up. Because the only alternative, if you don't get there, is spiritual failure for all of eternity. And we need to remember that and introduce that idea back into the church. Let's join together in the singing of our closing hymn.